Today, we're discussing the topic of education in the U.S. From standardized testing to disparities and opportunities, the education system in America has long been considered outdated and even inferior as compared to the rest of the world. And now, with the COVID-19 pandemic, we need to consider how the future of education will look like in this country. We decided to gather a group of individuals involved in the education system in very different ways in an effort to explore some of these issues together. I'm Amina. I'm Midas. And this is a Café Tenwir podcast. As always, at the beginning of our recordings, we start with a du'a to set the intention that we're here to build knowledge and gain perspective. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Rabbi shrah li sadri wa yassir li amri wa hlul aqtatan min lisani yafqahu qawli. Bayan Tbaki is an Islamic studies teacher at a private Montessori school in Michigan. She currently teaches upper elementary and middle school. Prior to her current position, she taught Islamic studies and Quran to grades 1 through 8 at another private Islamic school. She has a background in psychology and chemistry and has gone back to school to pursue another bachelor's in Islamic studies. You can follow Bayan and her motherhood adventures on Instagram at Bayan Tbaki and her website Baby Z and Me. Raisa Khan currently works with school districts around the U.S. in implementing new policies and processes aimed at achieving equity within schools when it comes to accessing school options. Raisa previously worked in the Department of Strategy and Innovation at New York Public Schools. She is a proud graduate of the Ford School of Public Policy and coincidentally loves listening to podcasts. We're also joined by Chris Blavelt, who is a passionate Muslim-American entrepreneur committed to building up the global Muslim community to reach its full potential. Chris is the CEO and founder of LaunchGood.com, the world's largest faith-inspired crowdfunding platform, and in five years, LaunchGood has raised over $100 million across 137 countries from over 500,000 users. He received a master's in educational leadership, research, and policy from the University of Michigan, taught at one of the top boarding schools in the world, and has been an educational consultant for 10 years, primarily at Beverly Hills Academy in Islamic Montessori School in Michigan. He also founded Fawaqih, an educational nonprofit, and was a producer for Bilal Stand, an award-winning Sundance film about an American Muslim. Prior to his work in education, Chris was a top engineering graduate from the University of Michigan, where he led the Muslim Student Association as president to win Student Organization of the Year. You can follow LaunchGood on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all handles are LaunchGood, or their website, launchgood.com. Yusra Yahya has been an educator for four years. She currently teaches history, social studies, and EAL at Evanston Township High School, which is a public school located in Evanston, Illinois. She received her bachelor's degree in education and just finished up her master's in education with a focus in language, literacies, and learning from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Lastly, we're joined by Nasiha Razvi, currently an educator teaching U.S. history at San Francisco International High School, a public school specifically for newly arrived immigrant students in the Bay Area. Prior to joining the SF International team, she received her master's in education at Stanford University. Nasiha also has experience in private schooling, working at Aqsa School in all-girls 6th through 12th grade Islamic school in Bridgeview, Illinois. You can follow her on Instagram at Nasiha90 and on Twitter at Nasiha Razvi. Just a reminder to all of our listeners, uh, everything, like all their handles, is going to be linked on our social media. So Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, you can very easily just click and you'll get access to our guests, inshallah. Um, but we kind of want to start the discussion by orienting um, ourselves and our listeners so that we have a little bit of a better idea how to proceed with the conversation. How does implementation of education policy kind of differ between different settings? So we can start with like how between the public and private school settings? So 
I mean, yeah, I guess it's interesting because when I, I was thinking about that question, I think it also differs a lot from state to state, the level of sort of how many guidelines, how much bureaucracy, like how much freedom do you have as a teacher to sort of build your own curriculum or implement what's out there? Because I mean, so in Illinois, I was working at access school, so that's private. And in that setting, I had basically total freedom in the sense of deciding, you know, what my priorities were going to be, what I wanted to teach, how I wanted to do it. And going to California um, and going to a public school setting, like there are some more sort of bureaucratic things or things that you have to do sometimes. Um, But in California, there isn't a standardized test for history. So there's still, for us at least right now, a lot of freedom around curriculum. And then it also depends on the school context. So my school is unique in the sense that we're a small school model inside a public school district. So SF International is a small school by any public school standards. We have under 400 kids, 9 through 12. Uh, but that's because we serve a newcomer population. So it's all newly arrived immigrant students. And so, again, our sort of niche within the district allows us to develop a lot of our own curriculum and, you know, set our own priorities for how we do things there, too. Because I think that was a fear of mine as, as somebody who had sort of strong opinions about how I wanted to teach, what I wanted to teach in terms of history, specifically U.S. history, right? And so I was looking for that when I was on the job market to say, like, where can I go that would allow me to have a little more autonomy in making some of these curricular decisions, um, not having so much red tape or not having so many bureaucratic, like, loopholes to jump through um, to get what I wanted as a professional, as an educator. In public schools, I think as um, as far as like implementing any new curriculum or policies, I think it's definitely connected to how well that school is funded in terms of like how much professional development. I know where I teach, it, it just starts at professional development. So every week, you know, every Monday for an hour after school and then resources are sending to teachers, conferences, you know, they might be selecting 20 or 30 teachers to send to some conference in a different state. Um, So I think, uh, you know, before implementing any new policy or curriculum, most schools, and again, I I understand that it's connected to what schools can afford to do, um, you know, would start with professional development. I don't have experience in the classroom, so I can't speak from like a curriculum standpoint, or I guess it's it's interesting to hear um, you all as teachers coming in and and like understanding what you are looking for when making your decisions at a private or public school from the standpoint that I can speak from, from a, a little more of an administrative central kind of district standpoint, working for a public school district in the largest city in New Jersey, our office works with all of the public schools, obviously, and then not private schools per se, but we also worked very closely with charter schools to implement a kind of um, universal enrollment policy, if you will, on kind of making it you know, one system for how students apply and get into schools across public and charter options. And I will say there's a lot of bureaucracy and getting stuff done um, in a public school district from a policy standpoint can involve a lot of red tape and, you know, lots of conversations. I'd like to think in an ideal world, it's aimed to hold 
people accountable and force governments and the school district to uh, engage with stakeholders and community members. I don't think that always works out so perfectly, but you have to have a good relationship with your charter schools and obviously with private schools as well from a central district standpoint. And, you know, we didn't have any say over what they did and enforcing their policies. So it definitely involves a lot more um, relationship management and making sure to have good relationships. So two cents from a, a kind of different standpoint. How does it differ between um, like your traditional education versus like Montessori style education? How does like curriculum development differ? Like, basically like or like education policy right so there are certain guidelines presented right. yeah so what is I guess like if we're going to have this conversation about like how to improve education across the board um, I think like our listeners should be should understand like well, if we do like X, Y, Z, that's not really going to affect a certain population. So I guess me and Amna are kind of curious about like where they intersect and then where they differ. Well, I mean, I don't know much about kind of like the, the policy part of, you know, Montessori schools as opposed to other schools, but I've taught at both. Both were Islamic schools. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess as a teacher, I felt like when we're when talking about curriculum and introducing new things that you kind of have a little bit more freedom to do so in a non-Montessori school. Um, I think oh. that Montessori schools in general kind of have very specific guidelines that you have to follow. So for example, just even if it's a specific activity or a specific assignment, or um, I think recently for me, it was kind of like deciding to have like a Quran competition at the school. So there are like things that you can't do at a Montessori school that you have much more freedom to do at a regular Islamic school and you don't even have any barriers. Whereas Montessori, there's so many guidelines that you have to follow. And um, for me, that was kind of difficult is that there isn't a lot of leeway to kind of change things that you might be interested in. Um, And a lot of their teacher development is very Montessori oriented. So a lot of the, the, the stuff I learned that was, you know, in terms of developing me myself as a teacher was all in the direction of Montessori stuff. Um, whereas sometimes at a, I think I felt at my old school, they had a lot of teacher development that was kind of like just a wider spread of different topics where you were able to develop yourself. What do you find ban leads to better outcomes for the students um, where there's, it's broader um, in the non-Montessori program or is more focused in the Montessori program? I, I taught at two competing schools in Michigan, so you guys know. And um, subhanAllah, like, I've had so many different opinions over the past five years. Um, but I feel like when, in terms of developing and moving forward, the outcome is better at a non-Montessori school. I felt like Montessori really kind of put a barrier, kind of like there was like a ceiling. Like there was like, okay, you can do this, but it has to follow certain guidelines. Whereas I felt like well, at my old school, there was like no ceiling. She was like, anything, you want to do in Islamic studies, you can do it. Anything you want to do in teaching Quran, you can do it. Anything you want to do as a school-wide program, go for it. Like there was no ceiling. Whereas in Montessori, I feel like I always have to be like, is this Montessori okay? Is this is this is this gonna is this gonna break a rule? Like there's always that thing in the back of my mind. Even though I only teach two grades in Montessori, so third and fourth. The rest of them are middle school and they're not Montessori technically. But I felt like I always had to had that in the back of my mind. I'm like, oh wait, I can't do that. It's, you know, not Montessori, okay. When you say, like, guidelines, do you mean, like, sort of just following, like, the philosophy? Like, yes, the Montessori, like, yeah. method? Yeah, following the Montessori method. It's, it's, it's a lot to take in. And it also requires a lot of, you know, creativity for you to move, you know, 
to go around it and to incorporate it into a topic that nobody has made a curriculum, like a Montessori curriculum for Islamic studies. So you kind of have to be like, okay, so this is what they do in like math or what they do in science. How can I apply this to an Islamic studies perspective? That was, that's really difficult because you're taking two different curriculums and trying to merge them into one. I, I would imagine that there's some kind of policy in place for like private schools. It's probably not completely, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like it's probably not 100% completely like free reign, like do what you want, whatever, just because they're accredited schools at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously there are some guidelines that you do need to follow. Do you find that those um, are optimized for like a private school setting or do you feel like they kind of um, are at odds? I think there's more room to bend the rules in an Islamic school and a private school, much more room. Um, you know, I, like I've, I've been in a meeting with administration where they're like, you know, we don't have to actually abide by all these guidelines. So if you'd like to do something differently, you're totally free to do it. Um, so it's comfortable. I don't know if I'd ever be able to teach at a public school because of that comfort, um, that kind of like, leeway that you have. I think public schools aren't that bad. I mean, it, even it sounded like, uh, I forget who it was here that's teaching at a history, um, history in California, like you still have some flexibility. I think it does depend on the subject that you're teaching. Um, so I think the ones that are, you know, more uh, aligned with the testing that they do, probably math and um, English, you, you have less flexibility. But uh, the one that we're not talking about is charter schools my experience is charter schools is like the worst sometimes I think it does really vary in the charter schools but some charter schools go like crazy with teaching to the test mm -hmm. um can you elaborate uh, so, on that what that means yeah I mean so you know the, to try to in, integrate some standards into education you know we have these annual tests that schools take um even private schools like our school Beverly Hills Academy will take them um and for um charter schools that's basically how they market themselves right like they get paid a, a, a you know pretty penny for every student that's enrolled in their school maybe ten thousand maybe eight thousand maybe fifteen thousand depending on the district mm -hmm. um and so the more students they can get enrolled the more parents they can convince to put their kids into the school the more money they make um and they can really advertise up by saying well look at our test results you know and in, in, in this in our state tests or in these national tests like look at how we're ranking and the way they kind of ensure that they do really well with the test is they just like every month, like at least here in Michigan, I know a lot of uh, charter schools and my friends have taught at them, like every month they're just teaching to the test. Like they're, they're literally um, having their students take sample tests uh, over and over and over again so that when the test come, comes, they do well and they do do well, like that works. Mm -hmm. But yeah. then the question is like, is that really even the point of education? Right. Just so you can pass a test. Yeah. You know, um, and, and I think that's it. It was, a, you know, someone with a degree in educa education research. Um, uh, you know, it's nice to have quantifiable data, but we also have like it can you get distracted. You know, you, you, you forget like the you get lost in the trees and forget the whole forest that you're looking at to begin with. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges with American education is it's so uh kind of commercialize like what's the uh uh be benefit of this and we want to measure it and we want to be able to to graph it and this and that um and then we forget like what is the purpose of, of learning and developing in general uh, and something i've always appreciated about the muslim perspective on education traditional word for it is tarbiyah and tarbiyah really means 
to nurture something, like to grow it like a seed. So like everything is in that small seed and you're just helping it come out of that seed. Whereas like a lot of times we think of education in the West is like, it's like the, the mind's an empty box and you're, you're stuffing stuff into it. So it's, it's external coming in, but actually the, the Muslim perspective is it's, it's already inside you. And our job as educators is to nurture that and get it out. What you're saying about charter schools teaching for the test in the New York area, which is where I'm, I'm more familiar with the school landscape, there are definitely tons of charter networks that are known for um, being really strict and almost militaristic in their style of teaching to the test. That being said, I think that the charter world, as with the private school world, I'm in public schools is very varied. So I've definitely, I think that for me, this conversation is also important to acknowledge that it's very contextual. So I know that the charter schools in New York City and New Jersey look very different than and follow different policies than they would out here in Michigan. I'm in Michigan right now. I feel like there's a lot of Michigan people on this call, but out here in Michigan. <laughs> um, so, so I think that that's also something to just acknowledge and think about too when, when we're talking about revamping education and revamping our systems is acknowledge the, dis the differences from not even state to state, but county to county, city to city, municipality yeah. to municipality. There are different guidelines, different standards, um, different types of enforcement of different policies. I to think about like how things have been moving in the last even like maybe 10 or so years going from like, I think more top down, like no child left behind era to where we are now, where it's like pretty much up to the states at this point. I think like things have devolved in a certain way. Like mm. there's a lot more state and sometimes local control on education policy. Whereas like with No Child Left Behind and other sort of common core even, right? Like I think there was this huge push for a long time to say like, let's standardize across the whole country. Whereas I think we're starting to move away from that and see more of these like variations across different mm -hmm. levels. This might be a controversial slash political question, but is that change in attitude? Do you think it's, it has to do with seeing like what could happen if we all did commit to standardizing across the board? Yeah, I'm, I'm like curious to know what the disadvantage of doing that um, and what the supposed like reason behind why we should want to do that. Yeah, like I feel like I would just assume that years ago I may have been like, yeah, let's standardize. Everybody should be like the same and we should all have the same like uh, guidelines and curricula and everything, right? And then I would see Betsy DeVos and I would go, you know, never mind. Like I would rather. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I was, is that the reason? Well, are you asking um, why or why we shouldn't have like a standard curriculum, standard assessments? Yeah. Like, do you want every school to have the state, the same laws to abide by? And what's the reason behind why you would or wouldn't? Um, I think that or there's no standard student, right? There's no standard experience. Mm -hmm. So there is no such thing as a standard anything. Um, and anything that we, you know, have pretended in the past as a nation, right, to be the standard has always been something that, um, you know, is standard for white middle class Americans. And so I think, you know, I see all the heads nodding. So I don't think there's anyone in here that would, you know, um, go against the statement that it would only seek to harm our black and brown students. Um, you know, our system of education in this country is one that is 
so neatly tucked into other larger systems, right? Systems of our system of housing, our system of healthcare, our system of um, incarceration. All these systems are extremely racialized. And I know that everyone in here, you know, has the, you know, events that are going on in our nation right now, hopefully at the front of our minds, at the front of our hearts. And so, you know, I, we can't come to this conversation without just like naming our education system as, you know, the racist system that it always has been and still is, unfortunately, um, especially in the public school sphere. Um, you know, and you mentioned like DeVos, I think, you know, her family, isn't she from Michigan? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah right. Like, did her family spend millions of dollars like lobbying for charter schools? Like nothing good has ever come from allowing private companies to look at our privatized prisons. Yeah. You know, nothing is going to come from that besides conditioning more black and brown students to walk in straight lines, to wear, you know, uniforms, to, um, you know, you're conditioning them for military prison. I think that was so well put. I think the one thing you just said at the end there about um, it tends to be our black and brown communities and black and brown students who are taught to walk, to, to follow these strict standards and not taught to be creative, to, you know, uh, be themselves in a way that you don't see the same in, in what I went to school in a white suburb. Um, and, and my schooling experience was so different. And you see the disparity in how people think about those communities and think about um, kids in a white setting versus when I'm working in Newark or in Jersey and with, with our black and brown communities. And um, definitely the attitudes that people have towards not just the students in the schools, but also when we talk about failing schools or bad schools, we're tending to, or the, the conversation tends to label schools in black and brown spaces as bad or failing, when I think personally those schools are also being held responsible for uh, solving a lot of the systemic problems that Yusra was just mentioning um, mm-hmm. on their own without resourcing, without funding, without you know, all of the other things that need to happen. You know, you bring up something I think that's really uh, interesting. And I would guess that a lot of us here went to schools that were pretty good. We ended up going to pretty good colleges. Uh, I, I remember when I was doing my degree, one of the really interesting studies I came across was comparing the American educational system of the top tier and bottom tier schools versus the rest of the world. So, you know, we always talk about all America's you know, 30th or so globally in terms of education. But if you just take the, all those schools in the middle and upper class, uh, middle, upper class and, and above districts, our students in the public schools are right up there with Singapore and Denmark and the best schools in the world. Mm-hmm. And so it's really, we have this terrible bifurcation of education in America. Like if you go um, to Bloomfield High School or uh, since we're gonna make Michigan references, uh, you know, which is a very well, wealthy uh, suburb, you're going to get a great education if you go to a public school there, a wonderful education. Um, and if you go to Detroit public schools, it's probably going to be a horrible de- education. And in both cases, it's public schools. And so I think that's one of the real big issues we have with education in America. It's just not equal, um, yeah, even in the places it should be, which is, I know it's kind of jumping to a different topic than the um, curriculum and should we have standard curriculum or not. But uh, I think it even goes you know, it ties into that in, in terms of the quality of education that we're providing our students. I just want to, like, push back, like, a, a little bit, I guess. I think, you know, again, we, we sort of, like, tend to make these um, 
divides in terms of like oh like you know what urban sort of public schools look like versus suburban and like these things but you know I think there's like tremendous educators that are doing a lot of amazing like resistance work trying to uplift like communities in like really hard places but I think at the end of the day, you know, it does come down to where's the money going um, and sort of how also are we, you know, recruiting and ensuring that people from, you know, these communities are able to get into education programs, able to teach, able to like afford the sort of ridiculous amount of standardized tests for teachers to like get into the profession to like you know make sure that we have teachers that look like the student population um i think especially since i moved to california it was a kind of a shock to me that um the per pupil spending in california was lower than you know i thought it would be comparatively given like you know what we think about california as a state maybe and it's really pathetic because um it goes back to funding formulas it goes back to how much are we collecting in taxes from people who have homes that are worth millions of dollars in the bay area um, but are paying property taxes that are very low because of you know proposition 13 they're not paying the property taxes that they would in any other place for the value of their homes. And then we have, you know, budget shortfalls in school districts that are basically filled with immigrant students, black and brown students. And so, you know, we wonder where these disparities come from. And part of it is funding, I think. And part of it is also like, you know, how are we removing barriers for people to become teachers and to like think of um, ourselves as professionals and think of ourselves as, you know, people who deserve respect, higher wages, like a lot of things, you know, doctors go through a lot of, you know, preparation and so do teachers, but, you know, at what point do we get paid? I've done student teaching multiple times at this point and it's unpaid labor. So, you know, like there's certain things I think about um, how we view teaching as a profession and like how it's seen and it's like the level of respectability that like that, brings up in people's minds and how people are being compensated for the work that they're doing. Yeah, I really appreciate you making sure that we have that nuance and that we're not framing this as a schools in white suburbs are good and schools in black and brown cities are bad because I definitely think that you can't make that line. And that's not that's not a valid statement to always make. And I think that tends to be the framing, I think, in a lot of discussions in a lot of spaces that schools and cities are bad and schools and suburbs are good. And I think your your emphasis on the funding and kind of how we're also I think it's an important conversation too is how we define failing in bad schools. Um, I definitely think that that is a big area to, to talk about. You know, I teach in a suburb and um, I know I have a very privileged, you know, public school experience and even with teaching where I'm teaching and even with their spending of over 22000 per student funding, like you said, um, Nasiha, it's everything. I mean, at the end of the day, it, it, it comes down to the money and that money is, you know, where most of the time houses are, you know, valued more, property taxes are higher. It is where, you know, um, white people are living most of the time in the suburbs post 1960s white flight out of the city so it is right there is a real geography um like it just is what it is right um that geography is connected to funding but even with that funding of twenty two thousand, 
in my school, black and brown students are still not getting enough. So it, funding is everything. But then also, like, who are we putting in the classroom with those, you know, with those students? And that's something that you already touched on. Um, you know, are we going out and finding those educators? Because the money is super important, but we need to go beyond that. Sometimes, um, like even in a private school, like um, even, for example, not the non-Montessori school that I worked at, we felt like we do have less funding than a public school would because we depend on the tuition and sometimes there are kids who are our you know scholarship and so we're not getting as much funding as possible and so something that a lot of parents have noticed is that the child that's really benefiting at a private school is that like average kid you know so the kids that fall a little you know fall need a little bit extra help or aren't you know keeping up with the average kid there really aren't resources within the school for example there's no um you know beginner class there's no advanced class so i always felt like very advanced kid doesn't get his needs met and the very, the kid that's struggling won't get his needs met like either and it falls on the parent to kind of bring in extra tutors or ex which is which is a privilege of putting your kid in in a, in a private school in the first place is that you might have that wealth to put your kid um in extra you know classes after school but sometimes people don't and kids who are on scholarship don't and i really feel like some of the kids are struggling struggle a lot because there are no resources they like they can barely pay the teacher that's teaching math and she's you know doing the best that she can and she's the only math teacher and she's got 22 kids in her class and she's got class back to back to back to back to back with no extra time and you can barely do it even when i taught there and i taught like Islamic studies and quran i did not have a single prep period it was back to back to back to back and if there was a single kid that needed a little bit of extra help they're like you know sorry like we can't really do much for you. It's going to come out of my own time or it's going to come out of, you know, my recess or my lunch. And so that's kind of a problem in private schools is that they really, really worry about money, like a lot. And they're always asking for donations, obviously, and all of that. But then they get to decide, like the board, this board that's outside of the school gets to decide where a lot of the money gets, you know, you know, goes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's not going to giving extra resources to kids who need help in math or kids who need help in science. Um, that's just an observation that I had when I worked there. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes our funding goes to like this big blow up thing that gets put up during reading week or something. And you're like, oh, that was $3,000. Cool. Um, you could have brought someone to help with math or you could have brought someone to do this. But instead, we have this big blow up uh, dinosaur or whatever it is. <laughs> outside we needed oh, that fun. blow up dinosaur no i'm just kidding <laughs> Did not need well it wasn't my decision <laughs> but there is a really interesting exception in michigan and maybe that is just an exception that proves the rule um is al-ikhlas training academy which is one of our private islamic schools in the heart of detroit in the area called hamtramck and it used to be i believe a sister claire muhammad school so it used to be like uh with the african-american muslim community and it used to be all African-American students, but like over, because of the demographic change of the neighborhood, now it's almost, I think majority Yemeni and Bengali students. Yeah. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if anyone knows. And they're always broke. I mean, subhanAllah, they really have so little money. Um, they charge very little tuition, like a couple thousand dollars a year, which is just like, uh, you can't imagine how a school can run off that. Yet they got, uh, ranked in the state of Michigan as one of the top private high schools in the whole state of Michigan. Like, like it's, it was like Detroit Country Day, Cranbrook, and like Ellis Claus Academy. 
and Detroit Country Day and Cranbrook are like $25,000 a year. It's like 10 times the tuition. Um, yet here was this little, you know, private school that was, I wouldn't say thriving. Um, I would say they're doing very well, like doing exceptionally well. Um, but I think maybe that relates back to a lot of the families and the immigrant status where education is really respected and important. And that goes back to, I think, something Nasiha was saying, like in this culture, generally in the culture in America, we don't respect education, educators that much. I think immigrants uh, often do. Um, but it just, it really always, to me, one of the most fascinating examples of private schools in the whole country is, I think, Alakalas Academy. That's actually very interesting, Chris, because I almost wonder, so because because it's a private school, if you do see performance like that across the board, is that something that, like, is that something that from a policy point of view can, like, benefit the private school? Do they, because I know, like, you know, you don't really receive public funding, right? I know that there's, like, a limit to that if you do, but does it make a difference is what I want to say. Do they elevate you as a result of this kind of, you know, performance? Because you would almost I don't think, think so. Sure. Sure. Yeah, because, because they are pretty strict with the separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think, you know, if you're a high performing private school, you get any extra special privileges. If you're really low performing, I think you could risk get, getting shut down. Yeah. Um, but uh, high performing, I don't think there's any benefits to it. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. I just, that's what I know. So what are some of the barriers uh, to, I don't know how to say that. I guess like appreciating our educators the way that they should be. Right. So I know Nasiha brought up um, stipends or salary. Um, what are barriers to, uh, I guess, fulfilling that or, or ensuring that that does happen? And then I'm also kind of as a follow up question to that, I guess, like from a policy point of view, is there anything that's put in place? Like, is there anything that acknowledges the great um, burden that is really put upon teachers, given like the system and, and how it operates. Curious to hear from, from Nisihan and Yisra and those of you who are teachers. Um, I know that in, in Newark and New York City, there are a number of initiatives and things that happen time to time um, to, to try and, and draw in teachers and to reward what's like teacher performance. And I was involved in some of um, the conversations on how we like look at that data around teacher performance and how we reward teachers. And I have my re- concerns about them. So I'd be curious to hear from the teachers here about um, your thoughts on if your districts or your schools have put in any of those types of programs or reforms. I often joke around with my coworkers about um, <clears throat> like how to get Americans to, uh, we need a reality TV show. It's the only way we're gonna get America <laughs> we deal with and actually get people to listen and pay attention we need a trashy reality tv show but obviously you know to protect the children um real teachers (laughs) real teachers of atlanta right (laughs) but um you know i think that because everyone has you know gone through some type of education uh, scholars call it like something of apprenticeship i I don't know if anyone has like heard that term before I, i can't really remember the term but it's like everyone thinks they can teach because everyone has been taught. Everyone has been in a classroom. I think part of it is like, oh, teaching, you get summers off. Um, but at the same I mean, it's not really, you know, something that bothers me personally. I don't really spend my time thinking about how to get, because not all teachers, you know, um, you know, I, I have feelings about tenure. Like, I don't really know how I feel about tenure. There are some folks that just should be out. Tenure is like, a, a tricky topic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, we deserve, you know, um, some type of job protection, but there are some folks that just shouldn't be there. So I don't know. Yeah, it's hard. Um, 
I'm thinking about it, especially because um, so in California or in our district after two years, you essentially have tenure, which is like, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, so it's like, <laughs> and, yeah, because in California, labor laws and like labor sort of movement has been very, very strong, very effective. And so um, that is like one of those things where it's like, yes, please, I want I want some security, like selfishly, but then at the same time, you're, you're totally right. There are people who have been sitting in our district who get shuffled from school to school because there's no real way to say like you are like there's no way to to sort of report document etc and be like you are causing harm to our black and brown students like please stop teaching um and then you know some people end up with a pension at the end of 30 years of service anyway right so yeah it, it it's so it's difficult um to weigh that so funny yesterday that you said we need a reality tv show but i feel like virtual learning was that reality TV show. Like the amount of memes that were put out like, yeah, I'll pay, I'll pay the teachers anything, just take my kids. That like, that was like all that happened in the past few weeks. And so many people appreciated teachers so much more. Um, they might not have shown it as much, but like, you know, I felt like people kind of really understood what it meant to have your kid, um, like you, you kind of put that responsibility on someone else. You know, you don't have to worry about, do I know how to teach them? add the first letter and second letter or whatever you know like whatever it is that you have to teach you kind of just put that on someone else and they just come home and you do their homework with them and i felt like this was that reality tv show that america needed it was like here it's on zoom <laughs> actually so i have a lot of friends that are in education and when i told them that i was doing this episode uh, it was pretty a lot of them actually wanted me to ask um how you guys uh feel that post-covid education is going to look like so my experience with it was really interesting. Um, I felt like my greater administration didn't really give us any, I feel like I'm not there. I feel like my principal doesn't really email me, doesn't really speak to me. I haven't seen her in three months. For all I know, she probably doesn't work at our school anymore. Like I haven't interacted with her, nothing. It was just the head of my department who's like, okay, we're doing classes and you can do Zoom, you can do Google, you can do whatever floats your boat, but you know, meet here and this is this. And there was a lot of like problem at the beginning where it was kind of like, we're going to pay you minimum wage or we're just going to pay you for two hours a day or we're just going to pay you for half an hour a day and then like we got kind of that kind of worked out alhamdulillah but it was kind of just like this disconnect like you guys are your own department deal with it on your own figure it out on your own and then when a parent complains we'll contact you so i felt like i was only contacted by my administration when a parent complained mm -hmm. and then sometimes parents are complaining and they're just like you know we're not benefiting from this virtual learning or whatever and i'm like you know it's I wasn't given a lot of resources. I, we, we never even had a Zoom, like a larger Zoom account purchased. It was kind of just like, yeah. you've got your 30 minute limit, work with it. Our school, because it was Montessori, because it's so much hands-on learning, there was just like this huge disconnect of like, maybe we're just, we're just gonna shut down school for the next three months. Like that's how it felt for a while. It, it's difficult. I mean, and that's why Nasiha, you know, I'm really excited uh, you wanna bring this topic up. It's like, our schools are so unprepared for this um just that technology leap and like i'm a very technological guy when this starts covid stuff started to happen and i went to a director of school i'm like you know we got to get ready to do like online teaching and everyone kind of laughed and i was like i think it's i think that's what's going to come to and then it was like oh you know we're only going to be out of school for three weeks and we'll take a week off for spring break so it's only two weeks like we'll be fine and 
and you know obviously uh it ended up the whole year like that and i think there's a real risk that we'll come back even if we come back in the fall uh in the winter we're going to have to again go back to remote learning i don't know I, I i don't think our schools are really prepared for it and then you think about the cost it's like okay i'm paying thousands and thousands of dollars maybe i mean some of the songs like our song school costs over ten thousand dollars um for the average student a year and you're doing that for zoom classes you know like does it, is that really worth it mm -hmm. um i don't know it's it, it's it's definitely going to be a big crisis for our song schools yeah i mean i know i've talked to so many parents who are like i'm not going to pay if, if it's going to be online next year yeah. i'll just pull them out for the year and put them in public school because it's just going to be online anyway but then the islamic school starts getting less and less funding and it might not be around the year after you know because nobody's sending their kids even if it is online so well, i don't know i don't know how this fall is going to pan out it's, it's going to be stressful um my husband works for the new york city department of education and i think there are some lessons to be that they need to learn from this this rollout of online and virtual learning he along with probably most other people who work for the D, for the department of education so the school district in new york city found out at the same sunday night press conference that schools were closing that monday and the plan you know what the plans were to get folks up and running for online learning so i think that my hope is come fall it'll be a little more uh at least from the public school districts and, and cities that, that scale a little more prepared and uh, you know a lot more communication with teachers and administrators and uh and in parents and families i definitely think that that's been lacking in both new york city and i think some of the other cities um, where i know people teaching and then the other thing that i just wanted to add in is i think and i'd be curious from the teachers here what what your experience is with this but from my couple of teacher friends have said you know our administrations wanted us to move to virtual learning and act like everything was normal um and you know continue classes and continue exams and and what and and homework and lessons as though you know we're not in the midst of this awful pandemic and kind of curious to see how uh, we're able to acknowledge um how teachers and are able to acknowledge kind of the realities of what's going on um with students in this odd time well yeah i feel like we were expected to kind of continue as if nothing happened but like it was impossible because sometimes i'd open up my class and only two kids would show up you know and then there were some kids who were like you know we we were sick with covid for two weeks and you know it's it it was it's, it's a, it was a difficult situation you can't pretend like it's not okay i felt like i had to start every class with being like are you okay is everything at home health like is everybody at home healthy are you guys able and maybe some other classes you know that are you know the, the core classes maybe they were stricter but sometimes i'd be like it's all right if you can't turn in your assignment today you can turn it in next week just turn it in by the end of the semester i mean i know i, I received an email the other day from like our our principal and she was kind of like oh you know so and so hasn't attended any of your classes what are we going to do how are we going to let her pass and i'm like well as long as she submits some of these things like i mean i don't you can't like this it was a difficult situation some people at home maybe don't have access to a good computer some people at home don't their parents are working and they're not going to sit and set up zoom for them you know and some people at home they have kids jumping around all over the place like i've sat with a kid in front of me who's like entire family is screaming and shouting and everybody's like yelling at everybody in the background you're just like yeah you want to mute yourself you know um it's 
you can't just pretend like it's normal. It's a completely different situation and you have to be super, super, have to be super, super lenient, has to be very understanding of emails I got where I'm like, sorry, I can't show up to class today because my dad needs a computer. Sorry, I can't show up because my mom is sick and I have to take care of her or my brother is this or my, you know, it's just kind of it's, it's a situation I don't think anybody was prepared for. And um, it requires very adaptable people. You know, you really have to be like, yeah, it's fine. You didn't show up. You didn't turn in this assignment. What can I do to help you? Um, it's not It's not a normal situation. You can't go on being like, yeah, you're going to have a test this Friday. And if you don't do it, you're failing. No, it's, it's just not going to work. Yeah, I don't know any, I think um, just like you said, Van, the like any synchronous teaching on Zoom, um, for all the teachers I know at least, it was all very social, emotional, checking in like you, like you said. And then um, the state of Illinois didn't allow anyone to fail this quarter. So that definitely helped um, with kind of allowing people to kind of just take a breath. Yeah, um, I think for, for me, it was interesting because at our school, we have a lot of really amazing educators at our school who are used to like doing the most um, or being like extra in terms of just like putting in a lot. And so it was crazy because, you know, we were trying to like develop systems, trying to like move over to online, do all these things. But then it's hard when you have like district giving mandates and guidelines after we've already like said, here's our new schedule or like, you know, things like that. And so I think it, it was a learning curve for us because we're the type of staff that's like, okay, let's make a plan, let's make it happen. But then we had to wait for guidance on like how many hours, how to do things, and then sort of having to decide like, okay, well, now here's this like district mandate. How do we incorporate that into what we had already planned? And then, yeah, I mean, the reality of a lot of my students, I'll just say, is that it was difficult to begin with. Um, you've been in this country for less than probably two years and, um, and maybe even a couple months. And here we are uh, in the middle of this crisis. And, you know, a lot of students didn't have tech. We had to make sure that they got tech. A lot of students didn't have reliable Wi-Fi. We had to make sure that they got access to those resources. Um, and then, you know, I just did like informal survey stuff about um, how you know, distance learning went. So um, the surveys basically said, like, you know, people in my home lost their job. Um, I was working. I had to move. It was hard to get on Zoom, you know. Computer or Wi-Fi wasn't working. Like, these are very real, real just things that are happening in, in students' lives. And so yeah, I mean, we try to center like the human being that's like in front of us first. Um, but at the same time, I think like the narrative around English learners has been like a lot of people have low standards. And so I think it was a real big struggle for us to balance those two things to make sure that people had their needs being met. But at the same time saying like, no, like we believe you can do learn continue to like try to engage um so i think that was a big tension for for our staff to say like we don't we don't want you to lose out on a quality education because as it is it's going to be hard and harder for you as a newly arrived immigrant student but mm -hmm. at the same time i can't deny the fact that you need to have your basic needs met to even show up yeah you guys bring up a, a, a lot of really great points about uh, you know 
like how, how like what the students are going through right so we so we talked about students that don't have good internet access or you know students whose family members lost jobs there are students who rely on school to like get to meals or um or they live with their abuser at home and now they're like stuck with them all day long and school you know was an escape for them so i'm wondering has there been anything in the talks about um i think the term you mentioned was socio-emotional so is there something like training for that or is it like you guys kind of have to figure it out on your own I know as far as like food, um, I, like you mentioned, some students rely on school, right, for their, for their daily meals. Um, I know that, you know, a lot of schools in CPS and in surrounding um, suburbs um, still issued um, <clears throat> like lunches and things like that. Um, but um, yeah, I, I can't say that I personally, you know, received any training on like where to direct students to get to a safe place if they needed to physically be out of their households. I can't say that I have personally. Yeah, we didn't either. I know before, like when the pandemic kind of started to come to America and we, we, we got like a little like five minute blurb at one of our staff meetings. of like, if you're, if the students are afraid, you know, tell them that they're going to be okay and kind of just like brush upon it, but don't like talk about it too much. But when it happened, no, we didn't actually like get any training of like, what if a kid does this? Or what if a kid does that? what if a parent complains or what if a parent does this now that you mention it i feel like we probably should have yeah let's see how i'm interested to hear what if you guys have but my follow-up question to that would be like is that something we should be advocating for so um one of the nice things about um the san francisco unified school district is that they had a wellness initiative um that was put in place and so all of the schools have a wellness center with a certified social worker or someone who sort of runs that facility. And so the amazing thing that people in the wellness center have been doing is they have been doing some of that resource sharing work around like, what are the public services that are available right now? Where can you go to get food? Where's, where are the hotlines or the things you can call to get help? Again, I think it's also, you know, one of the things that's nice about being in California is that there was the fund set up for undocumented, um, you know, families. Granted, I can tell you a lot about how that was hard to get access to and how it was a pain to like even call in and deal with that. But the fact that some of these resources exist is still a benefit to a lot of people. And so I think it was really great. On some days it was actually a lot because you had people saying like, there's this and there's this resource and there's this resource. And there's, you know, there's a lot of community orgs doing a lot of amazing work. I think it's just hard sometimes to connect um, like the information or to bridge that information gap to say like, here's all these things that are happening, people who are providing help and then connecting them with students or families who really need that help. And I think that, you know, teachers end up being that bridge um, sometimes like for providing that information, um, which is another sort of added layer onto our work. Like I felt, you know, on some levels, we're case managers for all of our students. Um, you know, some schools have an advisory model. We have an advisory model. So I have 15 kids who I'm like watching over a little bit more closely. And so we relied really heavily on that this time to make sure that people were okay. And if they needed resources, like you're the person to connect them. But that's a lot of added sort of emotional labor on top of having to shift all of my curriculum online. So it, in that sense, it was a little tough. Mm. 
So not having a social worker has been a problem at our school, like a lot. I feel like I, since, since last year, I've been advocating for some sort of social worker, even if she comes once a week. And as the Islamic studies teacher, sometimes like my class just becomes like a group therapy session. Like sometimes kids come in and they're like, I have all these problems. Can we just talk through it? And so sometimes I'm sitting there and I'm like, ready. I'm going to be like, okay, so today in the seat of the prophet, oh, wait, we need to discuss all of our problems. So that's even during Corona, like some of my classes, like we've spent 20, 30 minutes talking about like our fears, our emotions. And I've just become that like, that like social worker for them. Like, you know, and I can't be teaching for an hour and a half. Like I, you know, I only have a specific, a lot of time. So sometimes I'm like, which comes first? Like, which should I just be like, sorry, I can't listen to your problems right now. And then the other problem is that when you work at a private school, the parents kind of hold this thing where it's like, hi, we pay $12,000, do what I'm asking you to do. And I'm like, okay, sorry, you might be paying $12,000, but I'm not receiving as much as you seem to think, you know, it's a very difficult situation to be in. Everything that you guys talked about is, has been really great. Um, it's, it is very interesting to see how, like given the current climate, um, the landscape of education is changing and how it has changed so rapidly within such a short um, span of time. And so um, kind of going back to like sort of the far reaching impacts of that, I'm wondering what the, how like th- the emphasis on things that were once very highly valued, such as standardized testing, what do you guys think is going to, what do you think the emphasis on that is going to look like uh, later down the road, just given all these factors that we've discussed? I think I've seen some positive strides in the move away from standardized testing because of COVID. So um, the University of California system um, decided that they were going to make SAT, ACT optional, um, which I think is a huge, a huge deal because it's a huge college system that is pretty prestigious in some senses, like going to UC Berkeley, it's like a big deal. Um, And so the fact that they would push or move towards, you know, standardized test optional, I think is a really positive change. I wonder if it'll stick. I think, I guess I'm more concerned um, about what's going to happen in terms of our reliance on ed tech post-COVID. I think especially in Silicon Valley, there's this tech hubris um, around, you know, it's going to solve all your problems. And I don't want this current crisis to turn into like the sort of exploitive moment where you have a tech companies making a lot of money sort of saying like, hey, you need us when at the end of the day, like it's still about building relationships. And I'm really concerned about how next year with Um, a new set of students how am I going to build relationships connections on zoom like that's that's not natural that's not how this thing works and so um, I think that's an area of concern for me around what's going to happen with all of this tech um, that we're using that's um, maybe free for right now until June 30th, but then like, are we going to have to subscribe? You know, like there's just a lot of questions I think I still have around that. And it's fair to have those questions. This merges into my, my tech background. There's a great professor at NYU Stern School of Business, uh, his name's Scott Galloway. And he just thinks that this COVID crisis is absolutely going to accelerate the trends in education and tech. And so you know, for these companies like Google, Amazon, um, Apple, Microsoft to keep growing and for their, their stock prices to double, they have to grow a lot. And there's only 
so many industries they can grow into that have high margins. And one of them traditionally has been education, um, especially higher education. Um, and so they can say, listen, we can take, I mean, even if we take a public school, for example, maybe there's $15,000 per student. And they say, okay, you know what? We can teach a thousand students all at the same time for a class. Well, for an administrator, it'd be amazing. I'd be like, wow, I'll have so much more resources freed up. I won't have to have, you know, um, 10 teachers to teach those thousand students. I can have uh, one or two teachers. And that allows me to have money for other things. But um, uh, I do think we're going to see, you know, tech companies start to just dominate um, education in America. And uh, it is it is worrisome what that means because it doesn't give you the connection that Nasiha is talking about, and, and actually they've done a lot of experiments. Uh, Nasiha, do you know a sister out there? Her name's Imam Hagag. She's a friend of mine. If she's taught like in every school setting you can imagine, like charter school, public school, Islamic school, overseas, like English schools, like everything. And recently she was uh, teaching at one of these uh, experimental schools in the Bay Area, like the ones that like Zuckerberg, whoever is funding, and it's like. It's like super personalized cooking for every student and they use all this like machine learning and algorithms and all this stuff. And she, I think she left last year. She was like, it was just, they, they talk in a way that like they are the saviors of the future. But then when you actually like apply it, you're like, wait, no, this does not make society better. Like, you know, Zuckerberg talked about how Facebook is making the world better because it's connecting people. It's like, actually it makes it, the world feel a lot more contentious and like people hate each other more, not love each other more, you know? So yeah, I, I would extend those concerns we see in the tech industry into education. Yeah. Chris, random question. Um, are you a Simpsons fan? I used to be. Okay, well I'm one of those I'm one of like the fifteen people that still watches The Simpsons and so far I've caught like two things that you've said that have been like episodes. Um, oh no. Yeah, like have like the the first thing I think you said, the first thing teaching to test, there was a whole episode about that. And then the same thing with you, with you just said the like uh, like the the ed tech, the super intense like yeah. uh, Mark Zuckerberg t- uh influenced education. They had a whole episode about that too. It was very interesting. I highly recommend it actually. You, you know, it's uh, that's kind of the role of satirists in society is they can speak about the truths that are happening in in a way that people listen to them yeah um, so it doesn't surprise me to, to hear that yeah and in that episode with the one with the the super ed tech like uh, bringing in somebody to help a school that was like failing or whatever and it was very interesting to see the way that they were like grooming the children with this personalized education showing the um, far-reaching impact that that could have like they they would look at students and they and they would with all these algorithms they would be like I actually I hate to to use this terminology or these phrases but that this is what how it was presented in the show so not does not re- represent my view on like a person's value but this person this like eight-year-old is never going to be more than um like a taxi driver so we're going to cater a special education that will allow them to like follow that path this student is very valuable this student is going to end mm. up wonderful biochemist who's going to be who's going to like cure cancer so we're going to tailor this education to lead her down that route this idea of, wait, what are you going to do, you know, with ed tech? Are you going to just, like, decide, like, what a seven-year-old's path is going to be 20 years from, like, what, what, what are you going to do to our kids? What power are we giving them, basically, to, like, be able to manipulate the trajectory of, like, the next generation? Also, like, you know, people are talking more and more about, you know, what happens with the data. So, you know, we're on Zoom. 
Like what's, mm -hmm. what's going to happen with all of this like data, our faces, all these things, you know, where does all this go? Security. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, there's a lot I, of concerns. I feel like uh, this is definitely something I also echo these concerns and I feel like I hadn't really been thinking about it until you brought it up, Nasiha, but um, especially the money behind um, people like Zuckerberg. So I worked, I don't know if any of you were watching the Oprah show back in whatever year it was when Zuckerberg announced he's giving $100 million to Newark Public Schools. And so that was the office that I worked in. And so we were directly impacted by this money. And, you know, with money comes strings and comes pushes for certain types of policies and certain types of programs. And it's a whole other conversation, but it had been a nightmare. Um, and there were so many, you know, negative consequences that came out of that donation, donation, I, I mean, it seemed like a purchase a little bit. So, so I definitely just want to echo those concerns that, about the undue influence of people who have a lot of money in our education system. I think even before this, this conversation, this discourse about like the involvement of tech in the education system, we have had for a very long time, um, this kind of like corporate approach to education in general that is very heavily reliant um, on like, you know, capitalizing on education as much as possible. Um, and to, I think everyone on this call would agree to its detriment. Um, and I'm kind of curious to know if there's, you know, like on a national scale or even like in things like think tanks, um, is there, is there like a move, like, is there a trend that's kind of acknowledging that and working against that? Or do you think we're kind of reinforcing it? Is that the direction that we're going in? in New York state, uh, I think, is putting together a kind of plan and a team to reform education in this you know new world we're living in and they one of the biggest funders and influences on that effort is the gates foundation the gates foundation has a long history of influencing uh education policy in the u.s and so do many other foundations you know and, and people who have a lot of money um so i definitely do, i don't know if you're the answer to your question if if, if there i'm sure that there are a lot of community organizations and different educators and administrators kind of pushing back and being apprehensive about the influence um, of tech and of money and of corporate views of education. Um, but I definitely do also think that probably a lot of cities and states and districts are going to uh, kind of follow that path or, you know, you know, money um, and funding and programming, uh, you know, comes into play. I think that the one thing that not the same and I don't have a lot of knowledge beyond this one short statement but you know post Katrina um, I think a lot of ed reform um, folks found that to be an opportunity to kind of change the New Orleans uh, school district and education landscape it was one of the only cities or one of the few cities that was I think almost entirely charter after that and so that definitely um, you know has impact long after that that uh, hurricane and, and that event. So I, I wonder if they're going How to have they done instances. since they went all charter. I mean, that's an amazing experiment. Oh, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know what the, what the stats look like. I know that in the last year or two, they've actually moved back to New Orleans parish. So the school district itself, I think has kind of rebuilt it. It used to be called um, the recovery school district. Um, mm -hmm. And I think now it's back under the more local control. Um, my husband worked at a charter school in New, in New Orleans, and I think he would have a lot of choice things to say about that system. Um, but I, I good or bad, speak to it. or just a mix. Not so great. <laughs> I think like the core, like this idea of 
like that you brought up of corporatization of schools like has been there for a long time though you know like I think I was always like when I first found out that like the sort of leadership of Chicago public schools like they're called CEOs like literally chief executive officer (laughs) like why that to me was just so disgusting in a way that like you know you have this corporate hierarchy in a public school district and how they structure like what does that say about you know how they view students how how they view like education as a whole I think you know these things are just like they've been in place you know when we talk about how like the system as it as it exists has always been you know flawed and deeply disturbing um so I think in that sense, you know, it's part of a larger trend. It's, it's been around for a while. Yeah, I think like, so my brother and I have had a discussions kind of about this, so that, you know, this is a little bit like not the same thing, but it is very related uh, about like the, the power that we give, you know, um, certain people, like I'm not going to get all like socialist on everybody here, but like, you know, the power we give certain people with a lot of money and, um, and a lot of times like, you know, when you don't, try to uh you know cap wealth or anything again not gonna like not trying to like start a revolution here but like you know when you don't when you when you don't um like you know put a cap on wealth or when you don't um or when you (laughs) and when you uh when you uh whatchamacallit have like quote-unquote unchecked capitalism not saying that that's what we have in the u.s whatever um there are these like concerns uh about you know the power of money right and then a lot of times on on the argument that you know the people that that don't wouldn't want a more socialist uh, approach to uh you know education might say well look at bill gates and like all the great things he does right and then on the other end there's this discussion of well um do we want to rely on having you know all these wealthy influential people having good enough intentions or you know doing the right thing it does get into like a very complicated discussion and i'm not trying to convince anyone one way or the other i think it's pretty clear uh what i think (laughs) yeah i i hear that i think um i've been in enough rooms where i've heard people say that you know private market principles should apply to how we you know, make decisions about schools, particularly when it comes to school closures um, and, and enrollment and school openings. And I think that that is a really not great approach to it. <laughs> but but we don't have to have that whole conversation today. Yeah, uh, white saver complex is real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. I think you can name it. But I mean, like, I do see, like, there's this idea of, well, like, do you trust uh, the institution, the government by itself to do the right thing all the time at the same time, right? So, uh, yeah, it is, it's a very complicated topic. Like, like I think, like Raisa said, it's very much like a, probably a whole season in and of itself trying to decide the best way to, um, I guess, enforce reform. To your guys' point, like, I, I definitely, I think that it goes even just beyond, like, you know, profiting off of education, it's so intrinsic. Like you could just be an institution and in order to have any legitimacy whatsoever, you have to engage in this. You cannot like, you know, your students have to pay to take the ACT. They have to pay to like, you know, apply Mm -hmm. to like higher level of education. It's just impossible to kind of work around that. And while there are like outlets around that, while there are like, you know, stipends or, you know, scholarships to, to assist students in need, it's just, it's not the norm. Mm -hmm. Um, And the norm 
on the flip side is just to really engage in these systems of, of having to pay your way through everything. Um, and it's just, it's just, it's very strange too, because I think it's really, it's really changed not only like education, obviously like it's had huge impacts on the edu on the education system in this country and the higher education and even just like early education. But I think it's changed the way that we as people, um, from like a mass point of view, look at education, how we approach education. Um, and I think one of the prime examples of that is, is kind of the, the crazy high like competitiveness that you see, not just for like applying to colleges, but for getting your kids into a preschool. Um, it's just kind of really bizarre to me how we've kind of approached it. I, I don't know if the two are necessarily linked I don't know if it, you know, because we have these systems in place, like that's why we're kind of, this is the, this is the population response to that, or if it's like something else at play. But to me, it just kind of, it's a system, it's a cycle that kind of feeds into itself. And I'm kind of wondering what your guys' thoughts are on that. I just noticed myself as someone who grew up in the generation of taking SAT prep classes and going for the best and the best universities and the best programs and highest grades and extracurriculars, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously I value education um, uh, a lot and I'm very involved in my children's education as the consultant at their school. Um, I'm just not into like the whole, you know, race to nowhere stuff. Um, yeah. Like even my daughter, she's five and she's, there's so many Zoom classes, she has homework. And I'm just like, ah, what does it matter? You know, like in Denmark, they don't send their kids to school till they're seven. So, <laughs> you know, um, and- true, uh, yeah, it's, I, I feel there may be a whole generation, like our generation may actually um, really challenge the way that, that schools run. Like, do I want my daughter coming home from high school and spending four or five hours doing homework every day? Like, I, I don't think so, you know? Um, so I don't know, it, it, it definitely, things are changing really fast now because of COVID, really fast. I'm interested though, like to think about, just thinking about this sort of, this generation of students right now, because I feel like there's been a shift in how kids view college um, and undergrad and like the type of place that they wanna go and the value of that, like undergrad education too. Because, you know, if you think about it, like I went to undergrad paid like, however much I did and now I'm a teacher and my salary like out of college was not going to like recoup that investment for a long time you know and so I think a lot of students might be questioning what really is the value of an undergraduate education right now especially if your classes are just going to be online um, and like you know what's the value instead of pursuing a vocation Mm -hmm. And just also thinking about how, you know, like, so in the last year when this whole scandal about, you know, um, celebrities sending their kids to, you know, colleges and rigging the sort of admission system by paying money, you know, like when you hear these things as a student, like, what is the impact of that news on you and your perception of a, the value and like, necessity of an undergraduate degree from X university. Um, I think like, I think this generation is, is going to question that more than say I did or people before us, especially just given like the numbers of like how many people are applying to these colleges, applying to these systems. 
you know, and just sort of thinking about like, what is the value? Right. Yeah. And they're like, now we've gotten to a point where it's like three majors kind of pay off and then nothing else does. It's like, you want to study No, like you'll be like, no, it's, you're not going to be able to pay off your loans. You want to study social work? No, you're not going to be able to pay off your loans. They're, they're bad because like, I think there's a real value to a liberal arts education. Like, I, frankly, I think there's a lot of value to having a solid humanities, you know, liberal arts education to but like, you know, this is the sort of reality of where we're at in terms of people thinking like cost benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think when I was entering into college, um, like a lot of those students had kind of grown up during the recession and during those like really bad years. And so they were very oriented towards getting an education, um, earning a degree in order to do something relatively lucrative. Um, and that was something that like, I think one of the like, deans of one of the like departments had had just kind of mentioned right out of the offset he, he said you know like so many so many students are not thinking about what they're actually here to learn about they're just thinking about like how to get to the next step and how to start you know earning an income what's the best way to do that what's the best way to achieve that um how can i avoid falling into you know poverty um and he he did note at the time he said you know that's that is really sad that's really unfortunate um, and he, I don't think he's wrong. I don't think he's wrong. You know, I was having a conversation with my friends the other day and, and, and she was like voicing her frustrations about like, you know, A, B, and C and, you know, really had no relation whatsoever to, to her field. And she was like, you know, I think I'm just kind of expressing all this like pent up anger about things that I didn't get a chance to really study about, um, in, in like field, like, you know, in, in classes that emphasize the humanities, like you just learn so much about how the world is and how, how people are. Um, when you kind of are outside of the box of like what you're, <laughs> what you're being trained to do or what you're, what you're basically trying, like the next step that you're trying to get to in order to get that paycheck. Yeah. Uh, and I think we really, really lost that here in this country. <laughs> yeah, there is, there's like, even like I had a very similar experience in undergrad, like people were not there to like l- learn about like, they weren't there to like, I, I like the way Chris said like Tedbia, they weren't there to like, like you know, um, nourish themselves, nourish their seeds. They were there to like, they had a goal. They needed some place, some way to get money. Right. And I totally understand how that happened. It's, it's really unfortunate, but it was even there. Like when I was a student, cause I used to take like a lot of like random classes for fun and people would say like, you're pre-health. Why are you taking this Ottoman history class? Or like, why are you taking a poetry class? And it was like, because I want to, like, I, I enjoy, I want to learn about that. I was in a, different situation I you know I, I was a little bit more lucky to have um my parents you know support the idea of not finishing as early as possible and you know taking as many credits as I wanted to so I was lucky like alhamdulillah, to have that and I and I say I'm lucky because I benefited a lot right like so I walk around with a totally new different perspective yeah I'm a pharmacist but I'm also somebody who knows about Ottoman history and Iberia and the portrayal of Arabs in cinema and ancient Greek poetry and all these things that kind of like color your vision of the world and they help you understand satire more and uh, they help you pick up on things more and it, it benefits you so much like socially as a person and I've even heard no I know he's like a controversial person but Hamza Yusuf uh, Hamza Yusuf has talked about like the importance of the humanities like in Islam the way that Islam 
values the humanities like, it's like your ability to like understand the world around you and interact with the world around you and understand context and that's just that was just not the mindset of the average student at that time it was just i need to get in and i need to get out i need to make some money i need to pay off my loans i need to help you know my family with xyz um especially like if you want to talk about the the first generation experience like when your parents are immigrants and they sacrifice so much to come here a lot of them sacrifice their own opportunities for education to come here they didn't come with a lot i know that's not um that's not the universal experience but it is the experience of a lot of children of immigrants and so you do have that weighing on you as well like i need to help my family my parents gave up so much for me to have this no i agree uh, i feel like I feel like you need to do a, an entire podcast about the children of immigrants. Yeah, it is immigrant. that we've like touched on in almost yeah. every episode. Like it's because it's obviously because of the people that we're pulling, you know, you're all like Muslim mm-hmm. um, and more often than not, like just because of the fact that you're, you know, descendant from like an immigrant from one of those countries. Um, it's just always been something that we've like brought up um, in the space because it pertains to so many facets of living um yeah yeah, it just it shapes every single it's not just education but everything and it shapes our education so much even how i want to raise my kid and what school i want to put her you know just being immigrants affects that and even growing up and even going to college everything being an immigrant like affected your goals and affected it affected what major i chose it affected everything yeah um you know, I, I, I'm a huge advocate for people to, to learn about those kinds of things. But at the same time, like Nasiha said, this is the system we're in right now. And some people can't have that, can't afford that. And that's a whole nother level of like an opportunity that's lost. So now you have like opportunities that are lost in terms of like how much money people can make and how financially stable they can be. But now it's also like a certain opportunity lost in terms of how quote unquote I guess knowledgeable or well-rounded they can be. This, this is sad. Uh, this is a sad conversation. Actually, that that kind of Raisa, like I remember just having a conversation with you when you were telling me what you did because we had just like graduated college. You were just saying how you like work in like education policy, and you're like, yeah, it's it's really sad. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. I mean, I think I think everything that we've discussed here today is just really sad. Like, I mean, yeah. In in a sense, it is. It's it's very unfortunate in in some ways. I mean, we see a lot of good things. We see a lot of good things that come as a result of people being educated. But I think we're seeing a lot of ways just from this conversation alone, if not our observations of how we're being really held back um, because of these because of these issues, because of these systems. Um, yeah. So what we do at the end of every episode, and unfortunately we are coming to the end of this one, um, has been such an enriching conversation um, with all of you. You know, we, we just kind of like to ask all of our guests to share, like if there is anything that you want our listeners to kind of take away from this conversation, what would it be? Um, yesterday I was introduced to a new concept and it's called post-traumatic happiness. Someone who took this, like the happiness course from Yale that's actually online for free right now, I think. Um, and the, what they were explaining to me is that a lot of times, right, what we talked about right now is trauma that has been done to black and brown communities through education. And, um, a lot of times though, after trauma communities come together, right. And something better can grow from it. And that is, um, kind of, um, my plug to end this on a more empowering note. I mean, you know, I, my, my students study the education system and we talk about redlining and this connection to our schools and funding and all that. I think it is really important to end on a note that leaves them 
you know, empowered and, you know, looking for a better tomorrow. I love that post-traumatic happiness. I'm going to look that up. That's so interesting. Um, uh, I think one thing I've learned, um, it's funny you, you said that I said it was sad, which it is sad in that for the reasons you just mentioned, there are so, you know, working in education policy, you really, like I've really seen in intimate ways how these um, racist policies and classist policies in our history of the country have come out to play um, in, in our current like policy landscape when it comes to our, you know, school districts and in our government. But um, the one thing that I've also learned is that, you know, people and myself included have often been taught to talk about these types of issues within education. Some of the topics we talked about today, um, particularly, you know, I'm thinking about when we're restarted with good versus bad schools. I think one thing I've learned in education and, you know, in life, I guess, is that there's so much more nuance um, and so much more complication in all of these topics that we've talked about today. So I'd encourage anybody listening, and I tell myself this all the time, is to, like, anytime I think about anything as a binary, like it's a good or it's bad or it's right or it's wrong, um, with some exceptions, uh, I, I try to challenge myself to, to remove that, like, you know, line and realize that there's so much more, you know, um, that goes into all of this. And so, you know, so much more besides that, that, you know, yes or no, right, wrong. Um, framework. Uh, and I'm going to play off Raisa's note there. Uh, I, I think a good thing to remember, even just learning from everyone here is very uh, inspiring and humbling. There's, it's so, this whole cliche, forgive me, I'm going to be very cliche, but you know, just that Mark Twain quote of don't let schooling get in the way of your education. I think that's so true for us um, as adults. We have to keep learning. Um, and on top of that, with our own kids, like we have to realize that their education isn't limited to when we send them off to school. Um, even if they are spending a lot of their time there, um, it's our duty as parents to really shape them or as uncles or aunts, whatever. Education should be part and parcel of every moment of our lives until uh, those lives come to an end. Yeah, I think education is much bigger than just schooling itself. I do agree that as a, as a parent um, and as a teacher that we need to start kind of looking at building more well-rounded people and that we need to look at education kind of from a larger perspective and um, I know teachers are already doing this but kind of like even if you have barriers or even if you find that you know the administration is letting you do things but to try to the best of your ability to kind of always advocate for the kid and always try try to do you know do your hardest to to be on the, ch the child's side all the time and kind of push those barriers yourself, even if you find resistance, that sometimes if you keep pushing, you keep pushing, um, you'll end up kind of making a little bend and, um, you know, inshallah, you can improve things for the future. But, I'm, you know, Anjad, like, alhamdulillah, uh, you know, every everything has its difficulties and everything has its problems, but there are so many positives to every single situation. So, alhamdulillah. I guess I'll, I'll just say that, like, you know, I think we're always sort of change focused we're thinking about like oh how should we change things how can we change things i think like the change is happening i think teachers are working to change things um and i think like for people who are wondering how to ch make change i think listen to teachers <laughs> um at the end of the day like there are people out there doing the work um putting in the hours and trying to you know combat the racist system and we have to start really listening to those people 
um, if we want to, you know, continue to make strides in that direction. So we're up to me, this conversation will not end, but I know that you guys are super busy um, and, uh, and we had to cut it off. So <clears throat> we'll end it with Surah Asr, inshallah. Salam, listeners. You just listened to another enlightening conversation at Cafe Tanwir. We hope you gained some perspective and would love to hear your thoughts on today's discussion. Continue the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Our handles are Cafe Tanwir everywhere. If you want to increase this community discussion, tell your friends and family about Cafe Tanweer. Our podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Let's grab coffee again soon. Bye.